Hello, hello, good evening, good day, everybody. Great to be back on the 86th live stream. And as you know, today is a live video chat session. So I'm going to be inviting you all to come and ask me questions on the broadcast. So let me share the link for joining. Let me share the link and let me do it right away. Uh, let's see, where is it? Oh, there you go. I think I have shared the link. And uh, not sure if it's visible. One second. Uh, just give me a second. Um, yes, I think I should be able to share it now. Here we are. That should be, that should do it. Uh, let me pin the message. So everyone can see it. Yes, there it is. It's visible now. So I am looking forward to you guys, girls, ladies, gentlemen, all of you joining. Ah, here we go. Everyone's joining. Fantastic. Okay, I can see lots of people have joined already. That's good. That's good. So let us let us get going and I will... Ah. There we go. Okay, so whom shall we bring in first? Let's bring in Mr. Sahil Kumar. Hello. Hello, sir. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. How are you doing? Sir, I have a doubt, sir. How yes, to remember yes. physics formulas? How to remember physics formulas? So that's the question. Good question. You remember physics formulas and you remember physics, uh, the laws of physics by doing a lot of practice. So you take an equation, which is a physics formula, and you solve a lot of problems using that formula. Like not 10, 20, maybe 100, 200. It takes time. If you do that amount of practice, then you will never be able to forget it. So it's all about practice, practice, practice. See, there are two, two ways of learning something. One way is you read, 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 but then you will forget 90% of it. But if you take the concepts and apply them by solving problems, then you will never forget it. So that is the correct way to learn physics formulas and, the, and to learn the laws of physics. Does it make sense? Yes, sir. Go ahead, sir. All the best. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Bye. Okay. I think I should ask everyone where they are from. Okay. Let's do that. Hello. Uh, good evening, sir. Good evening, sir. Where are you from? What's your name? I am Srinath, sir. Where are you from? I am from Maharashtra. Maharashtra. All right, sir. What's your question? Sir, my question was, why did Brahmi decline as a script to write Indian languages in the medieval era? Why did the script Brahmi, the Brahmi script, decline? See, the Brahmi script was prevalent. When was it prevalent? More than 2,000 years ago. Uh, there were two scripts uh, around uh, that time, two to one and a half thousand years before today, Kharoshti and Brahmi. So Brahmi seems to have emerged out of the old Saraswati Sindhu script, the Indus Valley script, they call it, or Harappan script. And the thing is that, you know, when you are talking about a time period of centuries or thousands of years, things change. Things change. So there is evolution. So Brahmi gave rise to other scripts and, and it's always evolution. Lang languages change and evolve and even scripts change and evolve. Culture also changes and evolve. Everything changes. 
so if you're talking about a time period of two and a half thousand years you're gonna see changes so new versions of the script will come up and then you had uh, scripts like the sharda script and eventually you had the devnagari script you had the maharashtri script and various other grantha script lots of scripts emerged out of older scripts that's just the way the world works. If you're talking about just five years or 10 years, you will not see that happening. But if you look at a time period of 2,000, 2,500 years, you will see old things going obsolete and new things emerging in their place. So it's just a natural phenomenon. It's evolution. Evolution happens even in culture and, um, and society. So that's why Brahmi eventually went out of use and other scripts replaced it. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Nice meeting you. Nice meeting you. All the best. Bye. Thank you. Okay. Whom shall we bring in now? Let's bring in Mr. Hardik. Hello. Hello. Namaskar. Namaskar. Sir, myself, Namaskar. Myself, Hardik. I am from Haryana. And my question is, uh, why Mahatma Gandhi has been compared with uh, Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela? How similar are they? Right. Why has Mr. Gandhi been compared with Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela? See, it's all about image building. It's, it's about creating a certain image. It's all about marketing. So the way certain leaders are marketed, it all creates, it creates a certain kind of image. So uh, if you have been watching what I have been saying over the few past few months, it's, uh, if you look at Mr. Gandhi, Mr. Gandhi and his life and his career and his writings objectively, you will see that he is a certain kind of... Um, historical figure but the way he has been portrayed is very different from what he actually was like so he has been portrayed as a saintly person as the on the same level as the great mahatmas of the old times like mahatma buddha etc which actually is not quite accurate he was actually a politician and a very very good politician at that he was able to outmaneuver people like subhash chandra bose and get them ejected from the congress party via political maneuvering and so on so Mr. Gandhi actually was not the way he is portrayed. Now, uh, the thing is this. In, in other countries, they have wholesale uh, bought into the image that has been created of Mr. Gandhi. And therefore, people like Mr. Martin Luther King, who were fighting for civil rights in the US, they looked upon Mr. Gandhi as an inspiration, as somebody who apparently uh, got rid of the British from India without resorting to violence. So, so that is the kind of uh, image that was created, and that's why people like Mr. La Martin Luther King, who was not a historian, that's why they they uh, saw Mr. Gandhi as an inspiration. I mean, Mr. Martin Luther King was fighting a big struggle for civil rights for the for the African American people. He didn't have the time to go and look at history, study history, study Mr. Gandhi's writings. He just saw him as a big inspirational figure. And uh, so that's that's why there is this comparison that has been drawn. Even Mr. Mandela, uh, eventually he became, I mean, see, Mr. Mandela was jailed by the South Africans. And the reason he was jailed for 27 or so years is because he was initially, because, because he had resorted to violence in order to try and get rid of the apartheid regime. So Mr. Mandela eventually disavowed violence. And that's why he is also created, uh, compared with Mr. Gandhi, especially after Mr. Mandela was released and he became this pacifistic figure. He emphasized forgiveness and reconciliation and all that, which is good. I have nothing against that. It's a, that was a very noble gesture on Mr. K, Mr. Mandela's part. And it ensured that South African society went on peacefully, more or less. So that's the reason why uh, these three historical figures are kind of compared. But uh, I think India needs to revisit Mr. Gandhi's legacy and look at it, look at his life and career from a more objective lens. Thank you, sir. 
that would be good for Thank the you, national sir. interest all right thank you nice meeting you okay whom shall we bring in mm, let us bring in mr shane kurian good evening sir yeah hello hello yeah, how are you i'm very well sir how are you where are you from yeah, i'm from uh, kerala all right and uh, uh um i i want to ask you a question the question is that uh, about uh, faster than live uh, faster than for faster than light travel mm -hmm. okay uh what other what 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 types do you think is the uh appropriate faster than light travel to the stars and uh, do you think uh, quantum teleportation is a effective means of uh, uh, effective uh, faster than light travel uh, technology do you think uh, quantum teleportation is a better technology if 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 human beings manage to achieve it right so the the concept of faster than light travel is not allowed according to the laws of physics the speed limit the universal speed limit is the speed of light nothing can ever go past that nothing, I mean, no massive object can even reach the speed of light because there is something called uh, uh so so as as your speed as your velocity increases as it reaches relativistic speeds closer to the speed of light your mass also increases and uh, if you if a massive object even if it is an electron even even if it's a, even if even if it's a proton if it were to reach the speed of light its mass would become infinite and therefore according to the laws of physics according to special relativity the equations are pretty straightforward and the derivations are pretty straightforward according to this it's simply not possible to uh, to travel at the speed of light what, what of about do, what about yes. being quant what what about being quantum teleported to other exoplanets yeah quantum teleportation is a theory and it's not quite about transporting a person a from point a to point b it's it's a it's the the name is actually quite misleading so it it won't work and quantum mechanics actually it only applies to ultra microscopic subatomic particles it cannot apply i cannot uh, i am not a quantum object you are not a quantum object we are macroscopic object and our bodies and our world it uh, obeys the laws of classical physics not quantum physics so quantum technologies when we talk about them they are still quite a bit in in the realm of science fiction we of course do use quantum mechanics in uh, various uh, technologies like telecommunications uh, semiconductors and all that but teleportation is still in the realm of science fiction the only uh, and what i can also offer is also within science fiction it's about uh, going through a wormhole which i mean we have never actually seen a wormhole but it's allowed i mean wormhole solutions uh, do exist in einstein's equations of general relativity so that may be a possibility and there's also the warp drive thing that's going on so it's all still very much theoretical if it ever happens it will happen 100 200 years down the line perhaps possibly but as of today it's it's all within the realm of science fiction and imagination it's not possible as of today i'm sorry to disappoint you but i have to give you a realistic answer so that's where we are okay thank you sir 
Nice meeting you, sir. All the best. Okay. Let's bring in Mr. Udit. Hello. Um, yes, sir. Hello, sir. How are you? Do how are you doing, sir? I am very well. How are you doing? Where are you from? So, um, I'm from Saudi Arabia, sir. I was there the last session too, sir. So. Oh, you were the last time. Okay. Yes, yes sir. So my question is from the current affairs. Sir. Right now, we got the news about the ABG shipping company, right? About the fraud and everything. So we keep on hearing like major frauds happening in our country from the banking system and all. And like people like Harshad Mehta use the loopholes and everything. And many people like Vijay Malia and Nirav Modi, sir. So do you think or do you know anything about these loopholes or what were they and what caused such frauds to happen, sir? Uh, I am not aware of the actual details and all that of these things. But what I can tell you is that in the Indian system has unfortunately for the past seven plus decades relied on corruption, on underhand deals. I'm not saying yes, all of it is corrupt, but there is obviously we know it. It's all been reported. It's yes, not sir. like uh, some, some big revelation. There's been a lot of corruption. And that's just the way the system was run for decades. And that's why you had these things happening. It's called crony capitalism. The ruling party, the ruling regime will go hand in hand with various business people and they will have various deals. I'm not uh, pointing figures at any specific individual or, or anything like that. I'm just saying typically that's how these things happen. I'm not saying it was everywhere, but yeah, it was there. Like you give the example of Harshad Mehta. So yes, obviously he could, not, he could not have done all that without without other people knowing about yes, it sir. and uh, other people also benefiting from it. So those who are in power typically benefit from such things. Typically, not always. So I'm not sure about the details. Yes, sir. But that's how it is. So what needs to happen in India is we need proper regulation. We need to clean up the system. And I think that is happening right now. The more yes, the system is formalized, the more the economy, economy is formalized and regulated, the, the less you will have, less corruption you're going to have. So that is the direction we are going in, actually. Uh, about five years ago, more than 50% of the economy was informal. So it was yes, completely sir. untaxed and it was essentially corruption. You could call it corruption in some in most cases, I suppose. Yes, sir. But today, I think around 10% of the economy only is today informal. The rest of it is all formalized and so on. So we yes, are sir. going in the right direction, but still there's a lot of cleanup that needs to happen. No doubt about that. But yes, sir. Uh, the thing is, I, I am optimistic because I'm seeing the right moves being made. And we are progressing in the correct direction. Yes, so that's what I can say. So within this question only, I'm not add, adding another question. I'm sticking to the one question only, sir. So, but when we sir. talk about the loopholes, sir. Yes. Like, how do we get to know about the loopholes, sir? Like, which they use? We don't like... get to know about it. The loopholes are not supposed to be known. We are not supposed to know about them. I don't know any specific loopholes. I can just see there are loopholes because these things happen. Yes, sir. Okay. It's only uh, insiders who will know and be able to pinpoint the loopholes. Yes, I am not an economist. I am not into banking. So, and uh, I am a scientist. So, I yes, I really sir. cannot give you uh, specific details. So I just wanted but to overview. I didn't want the main details. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Thank you, sir. All That's right. It. See you soon, sir. No, thank okay. you. Okay. Thank you. Bye. All right. Uh, let us. Oh my goodness! We have our good old friend Bhanu. Hello, sir. Good evening, sir. Good evening. We meet again. <laughs> so you're from Jammu, sir? right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. What's your question? Sir, uh, recently Mr. Putin said that if NATO country will interfere uh, in the matter of Ukraine, they might use uh, nuclear weapons. <laughs> sir, uh, what will be the impact of this on the world as well as India? 
and sir how much chances of world war uh, 3 is there okay let's talk about nuclear weapons yes mr putin did allude to nuclear weapons he said that russia has a nuclear weapons power so don't uh, mess with us that's what he said uh in my opinion the probability of the use of nuclear weapons is zero nobody is going to use nuclear weapons it's not something you use it's something you keep with yourself as a deterrent it's only something you use as a, as the absolute last option so nuclear weapons are not something that are to be used it's only something you keep for uh deterrence so i don't think there's any any possibility of uh nuclear weapons being used in any conflict that arises unless certain thresholds are crossed and i don't think anybody is crazy enough to cross through those thresholds so what mr putin uh, said is called a nuclear saber rattling just talk about nuclear weapons and so on just to keep other people in place and remind them that i am strong enough and i can defend myself so that's what's happening now what's happening in ukraine uh, the american media the western media is right now saying that there's going to be a war next week there's going to be war that sort of thing there's going to be invasion there's going to be a russian invasion of ukraine in the next 4 to 5 days in the next week at most that's what they are claiming as if they are able to read the mind of mr putin and they are aware of everything that he is planning i mean who are they to say that on what basis are they making the claim anyway we will see how things escalate how things uh, play out to be but i do not see any possibility of nuclear war whatsoever if there is an invasion of ukraine it will be very well calculated and calibrated mr putin also doesn't want to be faced with a big proper uh, nato uh, big uh, war with nato on his western front so it's all about calculations it's all about what is your national object national interest on your objectives the thing is that russia feels that it is being encircled by nato and it is not a misplaced feeling because if you look at the maps they are being encircled by nato and nato is trying to now uh, uh move into ukraine essentially they want ukraine to become part of their uh, part of their uh, orbit and that is obviously a red line that mr putin will not allow them to cross so that is in short what the conflict is but the when we when we talk about nuclear weapons there is no probability of them being used all right sir thank you sir thank you nice to meet you all right let us bring in uh whom shall i bring in let us bring in mr rishab singh hello hello sir am i uh, audible yes sir so you are audible where are you from sir uh, i am from noida up okay as so i think we have met in a, a last i think in the last meet okay okay great. last last so so my All question right. is uh, so it's on the burqa recently we have a burqa controversy ongoing in india so can you shed some uh, light on the origin of the burqa that how did it originated and why most of the muslim women are so obsessed with wearing the burqa and so the next part of the question is uh, i've read somewhere in indonesia uh, earlier in back in 40s and 50s women didn't used to wear the burqa but uh, then after uh, due to the arabic influence because arab exports some oil in these countries the usage of burqa increase so so what's on your, what's your views on it uh i must apologize to you because i am not an expert in these matters it is something that i have never really studied or you know the history of the uh, this this garment or or even of this culture it is not something that i am uh, any way an expert in so if i were to make some statements it could be wrong and i don't want that to happen 
So therefore, I am not the right person to ask these questions. All right. There are many other experts and there are many other channels that discuss this in great detail. So maybe you could look there. But I can offer you one more question. In, instead of this, please ask me something else and I'll answer that. Okay, okay, sir. Sir, uh, I'm. I was thinking. I've read somewhere that most of the Muslim uh, dynasties, even in India, they were very obsessed with the Persian culture. Even when Mughals came to India, why they didn't adopted Indian culture? Because even Indian culture was also ancient, like Persian, and they even didn't adopted the Roman and Greek culture. Why were they so obsessed with the Persian culture? What was so special about it? I think what happened is that, see, when you talk about the so-called Mughals who are actually Timurids, they are actually the Turks. When they came to India, see, so it all starts with uh, this fellow called, uh, what's his name? Babar, Zahiruddin Babar. He was a kind of a loser. So he lost. And then there was his son Humayun. He also lost to Sher Shah Suri. He had to go into exile in uh, Persia. So Humayun, I believe, went into exile, escaped with uh, just ran for his life went to persia took asylum there he had to be he he was forced to convert to shia islam and then eventually he came back to india after shersha suri died and uh, and uh, yes yeah, something like that i think was it humayun was it akbar i think it was humayun who came back to india and so he came was, with a whole retinue yes so it was Humayun only. Humayun. It was Humayun, yes. So he came to India from Persia with a whole retinue of Persian officials. Uh, and uh, when he was able to regain the throne, he installed all these Persian officials, etc., as his bureaucrats and administrators. So that's why Persian became this, the court language of the Turkic uh, kingdom, the so-called Mughal Empire, because they had all these... Uh, Persian officials who did all the accounting, all the administration and all that. And it just carried on from the time onwards from, from Humayun to Akbar to whatever their descendants were. So that's how come that that's how Persian became the court language. And that's why there was so much influence of Persian culture and language among these dynasties, these foreign dynasties. Right? Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Nice, Most to, meet welcome. You. nice to meet you. Okay, let's uh, bring in somebody else. Let's bring in Mr. Sahas. Hello. Hello, sir. Are you able to hear me? I am able to hear you. Where are you from, sir? Sir, I am from Uttar Pradesh. Mm -hmm. uh, What's your question? Sir, uh, sir, more than a question, I want your perspective on it. Sir, uh, through social media, it's even more visible that there are people in this country who have this innate devilish hatred towards this country and towards the Hindu community. And these people are present across communities, even the Hindu community. So uh, my question is, how is the state of Bharat, which is highly developed and highly civilized, but it's also culturally connected to its roots. How is that state possible when you have n number of institutional powers working to break or destroy that very basic India uh, idea of India? Right. So this is the question I have addressed multiple times, but of course, it's a good question. So let's take it again. So what social media is doing. So, so many people say that social media is polarizing the country, right? Lots of people say it's causing polarization. It's causing the outpouring of hatred and all that. That's one perspective. The other perspective is that social media is simply showing the attitudes that already exist in the country. It's simply showing that, right? And now when you talk about the, the what what is called the breaking India forces, all the various NGOs and various other uh, organizations, etc., that are essentially working against India's national interest. Well, uh, 
that is because of foreign influence in India. There's a lot of foreign funding that that is pouring into India from various uh, from a variety of uh, foreign external sources. There are so many NGOs that work in India officially, and they they also worked as, as work as conduits for foreign interference in India. So that is the situation exists today. This situation exists because India is currently not powerful enough to stand up to certain very powerful foreign forces. India is not a superpower. India is merely a middle power at best. India is merely a regional power at best. India's economy is about three trillion dollars of GDP, right? It's not even ten trillion trillion dollars. It's nowhere comparable to the real big powers in the world, and that's why they are able as of today to arm twist india and they are completely capable of destroying india india if they want so the government whether we like it or not has to strike a certain balance so what needs to happen right now is india needs to bide its time and work as hard as possible over the next 10 20 years to grow its economy at least 10% a year anyhow until it is at least 10 trillion dollars in in value once that happens india will be an entirely different beast If you look at China, when it was a three trillion dollar economy, it was very, it was a very modest country. They did not have this wolf warrior diplomacy, all this aggressive nature. Nothing. They used to be, they used to keep quiet. They used to swallow on the all the insults the West were throwing at them, and they just worked quietly. So that's what India needs to do. Once India becomes a more powerful country, all of this will be taken care of. So what needs to happen? What we need to do is reach that state as fast as possible. That's what needs to happen. So that's what I can offer you. Sir, is this one of the reason why you say that Hinduism can eradicate, can be eradicated in the next fifty years? Yeah, if India doesn't take care of uh, the economy and all that, see, that's why economy is very important. As your economy grows, military also grows, then you can deal with things. If that doesn't happen, yeah, Indian culture will disappear in the next fifty years, fifty to hundred years. Certainly, Hinduism, like you say, yeah. Okay, thank you, sir. Thank you. Sir. So it's all in our hands. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Nice yes, meeting sir. you. Yes, sir. Thank all right. All right. Let's bring in Mr. Mr. K. Bhatt. Hello. Hello, sir. Namaskar. Namaskar. Can you Namaskar. hear me? I can hear you, sir. Where are you from? Yeah, uh, I'm from Mumbai, and mm-hmm. uh, my question has it's kind of dark in its subject matter, but anyway, we need to have these discussions, um, and I, I wish to ask you about Jogendranath Mandal. the first uh, i think he was the law minister of pakistan he was the first law minister and the consequences that uh, or the, the circumstances that led to his uh, departure from pakistan from his post and then he fled to india to bengal and he died over there so the horrific atrocities that he saw in pakistan on the minority community over there Uh, which led to his uh, departure from pakistan also if uh, you know if you could throw some light on the 1971 bangladesh liberation war and the uh, exclusively on the atrocities on women because this is something that um, we need to talk about we need to discuss uh, it's a very grisly and horrifying chapter of uh, south asian history so could you talk about that 1971 Bangladesh war, the atrocities on. Okay, the- when you talk about, okay, so when you speak about Jogendranath Mandal, was he from East Pakistan, which is now Bangladesh? 
I I'm he not was... quite familiar with his story, you know. Was he from there? Uh, he was a Dalit leader who uh, sort of fled. He went. He went to um, West Pakistan, the modern-day Pakistan, and uh, he was so filled with you know hate for the Hindu community. So he decided to just leave India, go to Pakistan. Okay, and I get he it. Saw right. some you know. Yeah, obviously, horrible. if you if you are in Pakistan, you will see all kinds of atrocities. We know that uh, when Pakistan was formed, uh, the Hindu population, I mean, non-Muslim population was around 30%. I'm not sure what the exact percentage was, yes. but today it's less than 2%. So obviously something happened, right? So so that's just the, the history. Now, I am not once again an expert in the horrific atrocities that happened in the 1971 war. I have seen some pictures, etc. when I was a kid. I have not studied that because it is something that... It, it, it's not fun to study. It's not fun to read. So I have not read it. I would not be able to give you the details of what exactly happened. I know that millions of, of people were massacred. The official figures are like 1.5 million. Obviously, the, the, that's been uh, that's an underrepresentation of what really must have happened. And obviously, it is the Hindus that would have, who would have been targeted. And I'm aware of the kind of... Um, I mean, I've... I've I've heard about the kind of atrocities that were perpetrated, especially on women, but I don't have exact statistics. I have not read the details, but of course, it all happened. It's kind of being whitewashed now. So that's just the way the narratives are built. Even in Bangladesh, they've tried, they've kind of forgotten. And if you see the attitudes today among the Bangladeshi people, they are like very much pro-Pakistan more than pro-India. So it's all about what kind of history they are taught and what kind of political environment there is and what the media tells you. That's what you swallow wholesale and that's how attitudes are formed. So surprisingly, today in Bangladesh, you will see a very strong anti-India attitude among most people. It's like they have forgotten what happened in 71 and how India saved them from, from what the Pakistanis were doing. That's just the way it is. So that's what I can tell you, sir. It is quite disheartening to see the attitudes of Bangladeshi youth yes. towards India right now. Yes. Um, yeah, you know. true. But it, I would appreciate it greatly if you know you threw some light or you made a video of the Bangladesh Liberation War because it is something that is not talked about at all because you know it's so uh, it kind of uh, completely it's brushed on the carpet. And it's I agree. Certainly. Thank you. Thank you for the suggestion. I will I will take it into consideration. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Sir. Thank you. Nice meeting you. Bye. Okay, let us bring in Mr. Shreesh. Hello. Hello, sir. I'm a big fan of yours, sir. Sir, you are a great mentor nice to me. You. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Where are you from? Yes, sir. sir, I'm from Delhi. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. So, what's so your sir, question? my question. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Sir, my question was that, sir, in one of your videos or or it was a session, I I don't remember. Sir, you said that mm -hmm. currently in India, India does not have any influence in any other countries. And sir, mm -hmm. you gave the examples like uh, in Thailand, India has zero influence there. So, sir, but there are many organizations like ISKCON, which are spreading Indian culture worldwide. So, sir, what mm -hmm. is your take on this? So, what I was talking about is hard power. There are two kinds of power. The real power is hard power. The India is obsessed with soft power, culture and all that. But if you see, India is not even doing anything to spread its soft power, its culture. Of course, organizations like ISKCON exist and they are present mostly in the West, I believe, in the Western world. 
in Europe, in North America, maybe some other countries also, I'm not aware. So okay. uh, I was talking about soft power. When it, I was talking about hard power, I mean. Now, when it comes to culture, cultural influence, that is a component of soft power, you will find a lot of uh, remnants of Indian culture in Southeast Asia, in Thailand, in, in Burma, in Vietnam, in Laos, etc., in Indonesia, and all the way up to Japan. You, you will still see that. But today, India is no longer looked upon as a country that... Uh, the kind of uh, respect the people had in the past for India has kind of evaporated because of what's happened uh, in the past thousand years, especially what's happened after independence. India did not come up, bring itself out of poverty quickly. India, under the Nehruvian regime, kind of enjoyed remaining in poverty and so on. So, so when it comes to uh, soft power, you are talking about soft power. We can do so much more. We can do so much more. Uh, our film industry can become a, a veritable of force from the soft yes, power sir. perspective but you see that but what we find is that bollywood doesn't even represent indian culture it represents god knows what culture it it yes, what yes, you sir. see in bollywood whether it's the films the songs or the dances that is not indian culture it is something absurd and something something yes, yeah so bollywood unfortunately what it should be doing it's not doing and india doesn't have a, an independent music industry of its own and so on so india can do so much more from the perspective of soft power. Look at well, look at Japan. They have yes, this sir. anime industry. Anime industry, Japanese anime, is a huge cultural force globally. Okay. I mean, kids, youngsters, teenagers, they they are they worship all the Japanese anime and they, and they watch it. Yes, sir. Yes, similarly sir. for the for the yeah, and similarly for other things like South, South Korea, the BTS or whatever boy bands etc. They have girl bands also. So these this is what soft power is, and India is not. Currently, as of today, not doing much. Once India rises economy, economically, it's going to happen. But I was talking about hard power. That is the real power. Your soft power is useless unless you have hard power to back it up. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you so much, sir. Bye, nice sir. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. Bye, sir. Bye. Bye. Okay, let's bring in somebody else. Let's bring in Mr. Kushal. Hello. Uh, yeah, sure. My question is... Uh, Where are you from, hello, sir? Where are you from? Hello. Hyderabad. 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 All right. All right. All right. Nice meeting you. Yeah. Uh, sir, nice to meet you too. Uh, yes. Uh, in 7th century, uh, there was this thing called impalement of Jains in Madurai. I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, uh, they call it a genocide of 8,000 Jain monks there. Okay. Is it true, sir? Like a lot of people deny it. I, have, I haven't. People... I, I have. I haven't come across this. I haven't studied this. I haven't read this. If it, uh, I don't know where these narratives come from. And if some eight thousand people are killed, is it a genocide? In Chittorgarh, Akbar killed thirty thousand men, women, and children. It's not called a, ge a genocide. It's simply brushed under the carpet. But if eight thousand people, I'm not even sure if that happened. But how come there is a genocide? How come they? I'm not, I'm not pointing figures at you. The historians or whoever it is that has portrayed this event, which I am not sure even if it even happened. But if it happened, how can you call that a genocide? It's a massacre. And you know, if you look at global history, world history, you will see such events happening all the time. But if it happens in India, it's somehow a blot on the culture of India. So that's the kind of portrayal that happens uh, in uh, by by these. Uh, 
Indian court historians, Darbari historians, Marxist historians, and so on. So, to uh, answer your sp specific question, I am not sure. I have not come across this incident. I have heard people allude to it, and it is gone. Okay. So, I hope that answers that question. Uh, right. Let's bring in somebody else. Whom shall I bring in? Whom shall I bring in? Let us bring in Mr. Vibin. Hello. Can't hear Hi, you. Hi, sir. Hi, sir. Hi. Hi. Where are you from, sir? I'm from Chennai. Chennai. All right, sir. What's your question? Uh, your opinion on Swami Vivekananda. Swami Vivekananda. Swami Vivekananda. All right. See, um, once again, I'm getting all these tough questions today. See, I haven't studied Mr. Swami, uh, Swami Vivekanandji. I haven't studied his works. I haven't read his whatever he's written. So I... I I'm, I still don't know much about him, unfortunately. Obviously, he's revered in India. There must be a reason why he is revered. But I personally have never studied his works. I have not read his writings. I have not heard his speeches. I only know that people worship him. So that's all I can offer you, unfortunately. I am not an authority on the works and the, and the life and the career of Swami Vivekanandaji. So unfortunately, I don't have much of an opinion because I am not inform well informed enough. Okay, sir. Thank you. All right. Anyway, thanks and nice thanks. meeting you. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Okay. Whom shall we bring in? Let's bring in Mr. Ronesh. Hello. Hi, sir. Can you hear me? I can hear you, sir. Have I met you before? Yes, yes. Uh, I have been in one of the other shows. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But can you remind me where are you from? I'm. Uh, I'm from Delhi, but currently I'm right now. I'm in Canada. Canada. All right, sir. All right. Okay. Yeah. Nice meeting you again. And what's your question? Okay, sir. Uh, so this question kind of popped up with one of my discussion with my friend. So it mm -hmm. just at a random day. So I was just uh, just telling him that how our, how great our culture was, how much knowledge we possess and all. But then he gave me a very pointing reply that if we were so great, if we had so much vast knowledge all over the students from all over the world. So we used to be US of that time, right? So they were coming us to acquire knowledge. So he just told me a very simple uh, reply that then why we were why we did not utilize that knowledge. So as the Great Britain did or the entire Europe did, so out of industrial revolu revolution. So why we so were we just simply sitting on that knowledge or not implementing it? Because we heard that we had so much medical enhancements, surgeries were happening and, and astronomy, there must be so much. So what really happened that? And I also kind of observed this. This is our, some of our Indian tendencies. So we have power, both soft power and physical and the hard power, as we were just saying, but we do not exert it. So why is this some sort of a thing in uh, Indian mentality or something? So even if you see it in the current time, so for example, the Indian diaspora, so in the US, so they are the top CEOs and all. But if you yes. see in the Hollywood movies or anything, so we have so much misrepresentation. No one takes us yeah. that of a serious power as compared to China or Japan. And even coming about the hard power. So even in the times that like uh, we, we did not attack even the aggressor, like Pakistan, they have attacked us uh, first. But, uh, but even when we just stopped at that line, that uh, what do you call uh, the Kashmir LAC, but we could very well take what was really ours. But even 
I get it. I get it. There are lots of examples. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let me. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. It's a very good question. So you said that India was the U.S. of the old days, right? That's what you said. Yes. Yes. I disagree. I disagree. The U.S., whether you realize it or not, whether we realize it, realize it or not, the U.S. is an imperial power. It's an empire. It's a global empire. We may not call it an empire today. But it is a global empire. Look at the I map. Agree to that. Take, I agree. take the world map and see where their military bases are. Their military bases are spread all across the world. They have the ability to intervene militarily anywhere in the world at 30 minutes notice. They control the global systems. Their currency is the world's reserve currency. They are an imperial hegemonic power. It's a class. It's the classical example of an imperial hegemonic power. That's what the U.S. is. India was never that. It was never part of Indian culture. So even when we had a grand unified empire like the Mauryan Empire or the Kushan Empire or various other empires or later on like the Maratha Empire, we were never hegemonic, and we were we never had this exclusivist supremacist culture. And of course, India's economy was over one third of the entire world's GDP yeah. because we were completely, totally industrialized. We were the world's first industrialized civilization, but we did not use it to go and invade other countries. The thoughts apparently never occurred to us. Right. So what we had is we had very high standards of living. We had a very good, uh, we had all these industries, we had healthcare, we had all that public works and all that. But we were never, it's it's about the culture and the attitude. We never wanted to steal from others. We never wanted to destroy other countries and transfer all the wealth from there into India. So that is the attitude India never had. These other countries, which we talk about the last 500 years, the age of colonization, the European countries only wanted one thing, destroy others and transfer the wealth there. That attitude never was there in India or in any Dharmic country. Look at the Mongols, look at the uh, Samurais, look at all the other Asian empires, kingdoms. When Even when they were great, they never pillaged other countries. They never invaded other countries with the objective of taking all the wealth. Right. When, if, when you look at the history of Japan, it's only in the late 19th century that the attitude changes. And they try to eradicate Dharma and Buddhism and the Meiji restoration happens. And then you see the horrific atrocities the Japanese perpetrated in China and elsewhere because they abandoned those principles. So India has never been a hegemonic power. It has been very powerful at times. It has always been an enormously powerful economy. But it has never been a hegemonic, threatening nation. And that's why we never did that. We could have invaded Persia if we wanted. We could have invaded Central Asia if we wanted. We could have, uh, even the Cholas even did that. They they invaded and, and uh, they invaded and conquered much of Southeast Asia all the way to the Philippines. But they never transferred the wealth from there into India. They actually enriched the, those places. So it's all about the culture the civilizational ethos and values, which is different when it comes to India. But now, obviously, we have to be educated that this is the way the world works. The world is very different. And we have to ensure it never happens again. Never again, like the Jews say. But, do, say. but do you see this happening? Because I still see slowly that. It's happening, that it's happening slowly. We are, so seeing, we are seeing a, a change in the mindset of India. We have nuclear weapons now. Yeah, we have that, that uh, uh, insurance. And obviously, we are we are uh, right now. What we, India is doing is we are following the maxim of Deng Xiaoping, means stay quiet, keep your head down, bide your time, and work very hard, and wait until the time is right, for, until your economy and military is powerful enough. So that's what I see happening. It's going to take another 10, 20 years, hopefully, but we will rise again.
and oh, i should add that you are also doing a very good job because i am seeing a very uh, very very young viewer so like you yes. are really giving them a lot of perspective and uh, good knowledge and one humble suggestion if i can make abhijit sir so Please, that would be uh, sometime i follow a uh, channel a lot so we see those small snippets of information for that uh, uh, that uh, why india had never invaded foreign countries and all but it but uh, to draw a more conclusive uh, knowledge it would be good that if you just in some of those sessions you pick a particular topic and expand on it and all that what that was misinformation so it could be india's freedom movement or the role of india in world war 2 an entire topic rather than fragmented knowledge because it would really build up on uh, having an uh, that what we know what was hidden from us so that will be really great so if you can do that in the future Thank you, thank you for the suggestion, and nice meeting you again. Okay, thank you. All right, see you again, sir. Bye. Okay, take care. See you. Thank you. Bye. Okay, let us bring in somebody else. Let us bring in uh, Mr. Uh, let's bring in Mr. Sia Bihari Saran. Hello. Hello, sir. Can you hear me? Hi. I can hear you, sir. Where are you from? I'm from Tokyo, sir. I'm I'm basically Tokyo. from Delhi yes but I'm in Tokyo I right, I've right. been nice to meet you nice to meet you too so my quick one question is uh, about the swastika symbol mm -hmm. um because recently I saw a documentary where it basically just uh opened it up that swastika was it was not swastika it was a hooked cross but the name yeah. swastika was given to it because of you know demeaning the the vedic culture what is your take on that i totally agree with this assessment the uh, see in europe for instance first of all let's talk about the swastika what it is it's a very mm -hmm. ancient very ancient auspicious auspicious symbol you find it in in, in india in the saraswati sindhu valley region mm -hmm. the sapta sindhu region harappan era etc it's you can find so lots of so, examples of swastika swastikas that you find in the archaeological record hundreds of them and these are like around 5000 or so years old yeah. and if we look deeper we may find even older swastikas in india so in india the record archaeological record shows that it's at least 5000 years ago it was it was reused as an auspicious symbol in other parts of the world also you find it i believe the oldest swastika like symbol was found in central europe present day ukraine it's uh, it's an ivory carving of a bird which has swastika like uh, carvings on it and uh, it's found all across the world it's found in africa it's found in the native american cultures it's a universal symbol of positivity and auspiciousness that's what the swastika is so it's not mm -hmm. something that is only restricted to india but of course in the 20th and 21st century the use went out i mean most of the world more or less stopped using it and it's only in the dharmic culture that you find it so you're mm -hmm. in tokyo if you look at uh, if you go to google maps and you, yeah. you go to the city of uh, tokyo or kyoto and you search for temple it will be represented by a swastika right yes. even today in google maps yes yes uh, because i yeah. i remember when i went to near the tokyo tower there is a very mm. uh, 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 huge temple and when mm. i first saw a swastika symbol there i it gave me a goosebump because it was not indian swastika but it was kind of the swastika that you know hitler Uh, used in his flag so i was kind of confused that you know is yeah. it just so propaganda it is, or is it what 
no it is yeah. it is a very very auspicious symbol in in the dharmic uh, cultures in all the dharmic cultures whether you mm. hinduism buddhism jainism sikhism whatever right so you find the swastika in mongolia in china in southeast asia in korea and in japan also typically it's the inverted swastika the reverse swastika mm. in buddhism right so it is a symbol of tantra etc and all that so there mm. there's a whole story behind it but you will also find it throughout asia and other places now what happened is when these in europe they never called it the swastika they called yeah. it the fifloth the gamadian the hakenkreuz etc in, in german they call it the hakenkreuz the hooked cross hooked so the cross, germans yes. never used the word swastika for this symbol mm. and when hitler took took uh, misappropriated it and used it for his political purposes he called it the hakenkreuz not the swastika but mm. after the second world was was over and the nazis were defeated the western writers started using the hindu the sanskrit term swastika for the hakenkreuz the hakenkreuz is one very specific misrepresentation of this symbol it doesn't apply to everything else so what the nazis did was they stole the symbol and they used it for something evil and then the western uh, historians ap- applied the sanskrit term retrospectively retroactively mm-hmm. to this evil symbol of nazism and that's why today you can't use the swastika anywhere in the world and if you talk about it you're evil and you're nazi and all that that sort of nonsense needs to end we need to reclaim the swastika and we need to impress upon the world that the symbol the nazis used was the hooked cross the hakenkreuz mm. not the swastika the swastika is a symbol of auspiciousness and positivity so that's what the world needs to be told and we need yeah. to do that i know i have crossed my one question limit but how do you think that we can bring awareness to the western audience speak about Because... it all the time yeah speak about it tweet about it go on social media talk about it one person can't do it but if we all uh pitch in it's going to happen it's going to happen write articles make videos tweet about it go to facebook go to instagram and talk about this if everybody starts doing it the whole scenario will change so that's what needs to happen right we thank must you very use much numbers yes all right thank nice meeting you, you good question sir yeah thank Bye. you Okay, let's bring in uh, Liu. Good evening. Good day. Hello. Hello, Professor. Okay, let's bring in. Hello. Uh, Hello. Where are you from, ma'am? Good evening, Professor. Hello. Yeah, I am from Shanghai, and I have a question for you. Uh, yeah. So I have been really. I have really. Uh, I have been really keen to know this, and I have tried to get your attention to this topic. I want to ask you why India and China have differences when we never had them historically before Indian independence. China, uh, India, and China share a lot of cultural similarities. We have both coexisted as center of powers for a long time during ancient times, and without any Animosity. I have personally visited Sanxingdui area, which shows how advanced Chinese civilization was at one uh, was once upon a time. Yeah, very good question, and I'm glad you bring this up. So, if you look at the history of China, it's at least three and a half thousand years old, right? As as you must be very very much aware. And India and China, we have had cultural trade, etc., relations for around two thousand years. For around two thousand years, I think I'm going to mute you because it's going. Yeah. Okay. So we have had this relationship for a very long time. We have never ever been enemies. We have always uh, 
been friends, very friendly relations. You had Chinese uh, 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 travelers coming to India, Indian travelers going to China. It's always been that way. What's happened in the last 60 years or so is after the Chinese annexation of Tibet, which happened in, 19, in the early 1950s, India and China for the first time had a common boundary, a common border. And that border was not demarcated. It's never been demarcated. So uh, that is essentially the root of all the problems, the long undemarcated boundary. And for some reason, it's never been uh, agreed upon. So the, the two countries keep having all these multiple rounds of talks about the boundary issue, but it's never moving forward. It's never been settled. And that essentially is the root cause of the problem that we see today, the India and China or India and Tibet border, which is undemarcated. So we have differing claims. And then the soldiers keep going on and tussling and, and uh, having all these little clashes. And that just keeps the tensions rising. So that is the root cause of the issues that we are seeing today. But for the longest part of history, India and China have never, ever been rivals. So that's what I can offer you today. But for the longest part of history, India and China have never, ever been rivals. Offer you today. But for the longest part of history, India and China have never, ever been rivals. Right? Okay, so what's the solution according to you? The solution is to demarcate the boundary and become, uh, yeah, the, the boundary problem is the only problem. If we, if the boundary can be demarcated uh, uh, per both the sides, according to both sides' satisfaction, then the problem goes away. So that's the solution. Both countries need to work on that. According to both sides' satisfaction, then the problem goes away. So that's the solution. Both countries need to work on that. All right. Okay, I got it. Thank you. Nice meeting you. Thank you. Bye. Okay, let's bring in somebody else. Uh, let us bring in... Let us bring in Mr. Pushkar. Hello. Hello, sir. Hi. sir I am, am I audible? Yes, you are audible, sir. Where are you from? Sir, I am from Diogar Jharkhand. Okay. What's your question? Uh, uh, sir, my question is about dictatorship in India. Uh, so, as you told that uh, the Western countries, they put up dictators in Africa to serve their national interest. So, why did they let India be democratic? Why didn't they uh, ask Nehru to become a dictator in India and uh, make India a dictatorship? As you see that uh, Mr. Indra Gandhi, he imposed emergency on India. And after Mr. Indra, uh, Mrs. Indra Gandhi gone, then any prime minister didn't impose emergency on India and tried to become dictator with the Western help. So what's your views on this, sir? Okay, very good question. Very good question. So you know what? You know what is the best form of dictatorship? The best form of dictatorship is a dictatorship that looks like a democracy. When you have only one party that keeps getting elected again and again and again, and if you have only one set of people who are ruling you for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, that is the best form of dictatorship. It looks like a democracy. It functions like a democracy. You have elections, and yet you have the same people getting elected all over again, over and over. So that's how India functioned until now, until very recently. India is now making a transition to a more democratic country. India is still not a proper full democracy because there are so many other problems. So that's why. So you see what the British did is when they left India, they installed a set of people who carried on the legacy of the British. 
India is still governed as if it is under British occupation. We have the same laws. We have a constitution that has its roots in the 1935 Act, which the British passed. And all the institutions of India are still acting as if they are British institutions. The institutions have never been reformed. So we are essentially still under, in, in a way, under, under foreign occupation, under foreign rule. So that is the perfect scenario. You don't need to put a Saddam Hussein kind of person when you can have this sort of a drama going on, right? So that's what happened. So, sir, that's what that happened. To say that 56 years elections were manipulated. No, 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 no. It is not. See, it's a good question again. They were not. I mean, I mean, I don't know if they were manipulated, but the people were so brainwashed into believing this freedom struggle nonsense that we got freedom without any violence, and we should we owe everything to the Congress Party that the people themselves happily kept on voting again and again for the same party. And you keep them illiterate, you keep them uneducated, you keep them poor, and then you position yourself as the only savior. They will keep voting for you. It's only today with social media that people are seeing the reality. And now that party is no longer in power. So now things are changing. And now that's why you see so much opposition to India in the Western media, because that structure is falling. You see, that's how it works. <laughs> Got Thank it, you, sir? sir? Thank you, sir. All right. Nice meeting you. Nice meeting you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Let us bring in whom shall I bring in? Let's bring in Mr. Uh, Anant. Hello. Hello, sir. Namaskar. 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 How are you doing? Where are you from? Uh, sir, I'm from Ujjain, Madhya Pradesh. How are you, sir? Nice to meet you. I'm very well. I'm very well. What's your question, sir? Uh, sir, my question is that uh, uh, around the start of 20th century, uh, there were three spiritual gurus that were present in India. Sai Baba, mm -hmm. Swami Vivekananji and uh, Paravansi Yogananji. And sir, uh, as we have read and heard that they have made huge contributions towards the uh, society and their contributions abroad also and have established a good image uh, of India. Uh, so sir, uh, my question here is that uh, if they had those immense powers uh, or for the lack of a better word, I, I would say special or superpowers, uh, so, uh, sir, uh, could it have made a difference if they had made their contribution being in India towards the freedom struggle also? Uh, because it's never discussed about that they have made their contribution in freedom struggle or anything like this. Okay, uh, so good, good question, right? So we, uh, you're saying there were three, three spiritual gurus: uh, Swami Vivekananda, Sai Baba, and who's the third one? Paramans Yogananda, uh, right? Sri Paramans Yogananda, yeah. Right. So you're saying these, uh, yeah. So. Uh, so first of all, I don't know if they had superpowers, like they could fly or have magic. But yes, they had very immense spiritual attainments. That is what is uh, understood yes. about them. They were very, very um, highly accomplished spiritually. Yes, that's what I uh, what what is understood about these three uh, great people. So your question is, why did they not contribute to the freedom struggle? It's because see, everybody has certain aptitudes and certain strengths. Now I may be a good scientist. It doesn't mean I'll be a good cricketer or a good footballer. I may not be, be a good uh, something else, right? And similarly, if somebody is spiritually very advanced, it doesn't mean that they'll be able to contribute in every field. A, a person who is a wonderfully accomplished spiritual guru may not be a great footballer or a great politician or a great scientist, right? Everybody, yes. especially somebody who has such incredible at, uh, advanced uh, uh, attainments in a certain field, it takes a lifetime of discipline and dedication to reach that stage and you have to focus only on one field. And then you can yes. 
help people, you can teach people things, but you may not be able to get involved in politics. Politics is a very dirty game. And the freedom struggle, it was all politics. There was no freedom struggle yeah. there. It was all satyagraha and all this make-believe struggle. There was no actual... Um, a real freedom struggle in, involves violence. You, you have to throw out the foreign occupier and kick them out against their will. That is a real freedom struggle. India never had a freedom struggle. And the real freedom fighters are the ones who were jailed, who were hanged, who were killed on the streets, and their names are not remembered. So it's a very different thing. And uh, so that's what I can say. See, a, a person who is a spiritually accomplished person may not be able to become a great politician or something else in a different field. And that's why they I, I, they could, from their perspective, from from their in 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 whatever manner they could. That's what I can say. Thank you, sir. Thank you for choosing. All right, nice you. Thanks for the question. Have a good day, sir. Okay, let us bring in somebody else. Uh, let's bring in Mr. Ishan, who's been waiting for quite some time. Hello. Hello, sir. Hello, how are you doing? Where are you from, sir? From Milky Way. From the Milky Way. That's a fantastic answer. I've seen you before, right? Yes. What's yes. your question, sir? Yes, sir. So I had a question. So, you've spoken about books like Arthashastra, Janakini, The Art of War. So, I wanted to ask you, how do you read these books? How do you establish the discipline to read these books? Because I've, because I've seen it, that especially Indians, they their mind tends to, you know, be like, pass, pass, let's, you know, read it fast and more faster. I just want to finish it. You know, they get overwhelmed. So how do you establish the discipline to read such books and how do you read them? What's the technique? Yes, that's a very good question. How to learn something and how to be disciplined in, in, in reading books. So first of all, I have never had to discipline myself to read books. I have always been interested in knowledge and I have always been driven by my curiosity. So if you ask me to read a book on something I don't, I don't find interesting, I will not have the discipline to read it. I can only read stuff that I find interesting. So if my curiosity takes me to that place, then I will not need discipline to, to read the book. So that's the first thing. Now, how do I actually read a book? Like for instance, the Arthashastra, it's a very large book. How do I read it? So I give myself permission to forget everything I read. I'm going to read it and I'm not going to try and memorize things, underline things, read this paragraph three times. No, I'll just read it. I read quite fast. So I give myself the permission to forget everything. And I know that if I have that permission, then the things that I find especially interesting, I will I will retain that. So it is something. So for instance, the Arthashastra, if you read it five times, you will learn new things every time. So that's how I do it. I don't retain everything 100% when I read something. I may retain 20% or 30% at most in one reading. Then I will revisit it. So it takes time. It's not something you can do in a week. A book like the Arthashastra, it may take you maybe five years, ten years to master it, which is a very huge amount of time from your perspective, right? So it's like that. See, learning is a lifelong process. It's not like by the time you're 18 or 20, you have to learn everything and then you go and live your life. No, learning is a lifelong process. So I allow myself to be led and driven by my curiosity. I don't even try to read a book in its entirety. I may find some chapter interesting. I'll read this chapter right now. Then I'll put it away and later I may revisit it at a later time. So that's how I do it. There are so many books I have read only some part of it, maybe one third, one uh, a half or something. I never try force myself to complete a book. If it is no longer interesting after five chapters, I throw it away. 
I mean, I throw it away. I mean, I mean, I just keep it aside, and that's how I do it. So that is the way I read, and that's how I've always been, and that's that's worked for me. It may not work for everybody, but I can offer you my perspective, right? All right, sir. Yes, sir. Just one more suggestion. Suggestion, yes, sir. What's the suggestion? Yes, I think I don't know if you remember, but I think in the first session when I first came here, I told you to make something on Ottoman Bismarck. So uh, since the podcast has been Ottoman Bismarck. Ottoman Bismarck. Bismarck. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So since the podcast is here, can you, you know, sometime in the future? You know, just invite some person who has got deep into his life and all that. What a great suggestion. Very, very good suggestion. I will certainly try and do that. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, yes, Thank you. Yeah. Just one more. Thing. Yes, that's it. That's it. Okay. That's it. That's it. That's it. Okay. <laughs> tell me, what is the one more thing? Tell me, tell me, tell me. Go ahead. Okay. So actually, I'm reading one book. It's called Retaining Balance by M.R. Venkatesh. Is this a question? No, it's not a question. <laughs> so I was just thinking that can you invite him and you know. Who exactly? Who is it? Mr. Venkatesh. Mr. Venkatesh. Okay, I will look him up and let's see. Yeah. Thanks for the suggestion. Thank you. Bye bye. All right. Um, as always, we have lots of people waiting in the queue. So let's bring in Mr. Um, Mr. Kabir Bisla. Hello. Hello, sir. Hello. How are you doing? Where are you from, sir? Sir, Meerut, sir. Meerut? Yes, sir. Okay. What's yes, your question, sir? sir? Yes, sir. So, my question is about Subhash Chandra Bose. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Yes. sir uh, you, have, you have done your podcast with Anuj Dhar. And, sir, yeah. in there, you concluded that he was alive till 85. And okay, yeah. he didn't come out because uh, the, the sanctions British. So, sir, I want to ask, sir, even after his death, why are they not revealing that his true identity? Uh, after his death, why are they not revealing his true identity? That's a good question. I, I think uh, what Anuj Dar said is that the entire uh, story of the so-called independence struggle is based upon a lie. They have uh, elevated the stature of Mr. Mohandas Gandhi to the high heavens. And now if, uh, if the truth about uh, Subhash Chandra Bose is revealed, then the entire investment these people have done in, the, in building up the image of Mohandas Gandhi will kind of uh, be wasted. Because people will realize the contributions, the real contributions of uh, Nitaji Subhash Chandra Bose, and they will realize what Mr. Gandhi did, and so on and so forth. So that is the reason, just to protect the image of Mr. Gandhi. And of course, we, we know that the government invests a lot of effort, a lot of time, energy in propping up the image of Mr. Gandhi, all the Swachh Bharat Abhiyan, and all everything is based upon the image of Mr. Gandhi, right? They're using Mr. Gandhi to to as the, as the logo and the mascot for all of these things. And if a, a different uh, kind of truth comes out, then that entire investment will be in vain. So that is the argument I believe Mr. Anuj Dhar has made. So I am still in the process of reading the book. So I have yet to draw uh, concrete conclusions. But I think that is the uh, what was discussed on that day in our podcast. Yes. And I think it, uh, it's quite plausible what he, uh, what he is saying. Yes. Okay, sir. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Nice meeting you again. 
Okay, let's bring in someone who's been waiting for a while. Who is there? Uh, let's bring in Mr. Som Sharma. Hello. Hi, sir. Big fan Hi. of you, sir. How are you? Thank Big you so much. You, nice sir. meeting you. Thank you, thank you. Yes, Where are you from, sir? My, uh, I am from Chhattisgarh, Bimitara. Yeah. Okay, okay. My first question is, how we can revive a Sanskrit language and how Hebrew was revived? Uh, what are the challenges faced by Hebrew to revive it? Right, and, so uh, that's a very good question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah sir. That's my yeah, question. Okay. How we can we can revive Sanskrit and what are the challenges in this journey? Yeah. All right. So let's talk about Hebrew. So the, the Hebrew language was not in use for a very long time. It's an ancient language. It's the original language of the, of the Jewish people. Now the Jewish people were uh, scattered across uh, Eurasia, mostly in Europe for a very long time. And for over a thousand years, the Hebrew language was not in use. use. They spoke languages like Yiddish, etc. that had some elements of the Hebrew Hebrew vocabulary, etc. But it was mixed up with other languages like German and so on and so forth. So when the nation was of Israel was created in the 1940s, then the Jewish people, their government decided to revive Hebrew and they made the teaching of Hebrew compulsory in all the schools, classrooms, and they made it the medium of education. So just in 10, 20 years, it was very easy to bring Hebrew back and make it a living language again. And now all the official communications, all the news, all the media, everything is in Hebrew. So it took, it's it's not something you can do next week or next month. It takes 10, 20 years. And Israel is a, is a small country, so the challenges were less. And there was very little opposition to reviving Hebrew in, in Israel. When it comes to India, India is a deeply fragmented country. We are still deeply colonized. If you say we're going to revive Sanskrit, then all kinds of people will rise up against India, uh, rise up against this, uh, this uh, endeavor. So it, the challenge is much larger in India because uh, the education system has created this attitude among everybody who gets educated that India is a backward culture in Sanskrit is the language of oppression and all that nonsense. It is being officially taught in our education system. They are brainwashing all the kids, all the youngsters. So that is a big challenge. So how do you bring back Sanskrit? You need a strong, you need a strong enough leader who will do it despite the opposition. That's the first thing. And secondly, make it compulsory in, in education. Make Sanskrit the official language in education. Start one year at a time. Start from next year's kindergarten, KG, then junior KG, then senior KG. Then over 20 years, you can extend it to all levels of the education system. So it has to be a phased, phased deployment. And of course, uh, it, it will face opposition. But if you have a strong enough leadership, it is certainly possible. So I would say that it would take about 20, 30 years at most to bring back Sanskrit into the mainstream. It would not take long. It's not a dead language for thousands of years, for instance. Yeah. Until the 19th century, it was the official language. It was the medium of education in schools and temples across the country, everywhere. Yeah, also it is British the British who destroyed the education system of India and they wiped out Sanskrit. Yes, sir. What are you saying? Sir, if our uh, Rishi Munis were uh, farsighted, so they must have protected uh, our uh, text. And, so one uh, question per person. <laughs> one question per person. I think it's very clear. I've made it very clear. Yeah. Only one question per person. Right? Sorry. All right. So thank you for the question. And maybe next time you can ask another one. Yes. All right. I am waiting All for right. since so long. <laughs> for Everybody is waiting. Everybody is waiting. Yeah. <laughs> nice meeting thank you. you sir. Very Big good fan. question. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. All right. Let's bring in Mr. Pavan. 
हेलो हाय सर नमस्ते सर हाउ आर यू नमस्ते नमस्ते आई एम वेरी वेल वेयर फ्रॉम सर आई एम फ्रॉम तेलंगाना सर तेलंगाना वेरी नाइस व्हाट्स योर क्वेश्चन सर सर हु वाज रूलिंग बिफोर नंदास वी नो इंडिया इज एन एंशिएंट सिविलाइजेशन बट आई थिंक रिकॉर्डेड हिस्ट्री सेस इट सीम्स लाइक नंदास वर द फर्स्ट एंपायर बट was actually ruling before nandas maybe before magadha empire it's a very good question and i don't have a, have an accurate answer uh, we know that uh, see uh, if you look at india's history textbooks if you look at oh, writers from the past like rc majumdar i think the nanda dynasty is considered to be where indian history officially begins because before that the records are not very clear or whatever and because the british had to compress indian history into a certain time frame that's why everything seems to start with the nanda dynasty and the mauryan dynasty at the time of the buddha etc but of course there was much more before that but we don't have the details so even i don't have a clear idea of exactly who was there before the nanda dynasty so the nanda dynasty was in magadh that is bihar and uh, uh, that that region bihar bengal orissa that region i am not quite sure that's a very good question you asked and unfortunately i i can't think of who was ruling that region before the nandas obviously somebody must be doing it i think i will have to look it up and i will have to answer that question in a in a future episode but you brought out a very good question i am not sure we have the answers but i think i need to look that up that's what i can say all right sir thank you for the question no thank you yeah thank you yes, very sir. nice meeting you very nice meeting you thank yeah, you sir sir please yeah. don't stop thank you certainly thank you so much okay let's bring in whom shall we bring in let's bring in mr guru hello hi hello Hi, where are you from, sir? I'm from Bangalore, sir. sir Bangalore, so all right, sir. What's your question? Yeah. Uh, is time cyclical or linear? If it, <laughs> is, if it is cyclical, where does it start? Can we break the cycle and view it in a third person's perspective? Okay, good question. I have never seen any evidence of cyclical time. i know certain very eminent etc writers etc talk about cyclical time i have even read the papers they try to introduce a certain kind of differential equation a very complicated convoluted differential equation to say that time is cyclic see i am a simple person i look at i i see time from a physics perspective and from the perspective of physics we don't quite know what time is of course we use the time variable in our equations and all that and if you look at the entire the entire known history of the universe if you look at the best theory that we have of the history of the universe which is the so called big bang theory the standard model all that time begins 13.8 billion years before today which is the the event which is known as the big bang which is actually the expansion of space time from a very small uh, from essentially what looks like was a singularity and from that time has flowed in one direction now we don't quite know what time is time is very mysterious it's still not understood at all but from everything we know from a physics perspective time has only flown in one direction of course the equations are bilinear they can go back in time also and that's why we were able to trace back what could have happened in the beginning so that's what i can say i have never seen any evidence i mean i don't know what on what basis people claim that time is is cyclical uh when they bring in philosophical and spiritual concepts into physics it's no longer physics 
so from my perspective i can only say that the time is linear i have seen no we have the theory of the yugas and all that is not cyclical time that is simply rep history repeating itself so that is not uh, the the idea of cyclical time the time itself is cyclical historical events follow cycles that is true but that is not cyclical time that is just human history that uh, that has patterns that repeat itself that you of course see that so from my perspective from a physics perspective i have seen no evidence whatsoever of cyclical time i know some people talk about that there's a big following also but no i i i i go on the basis of evidence and there is no evidence for that so that's what i can tell you so so we can think that uh, so can we say that uh, historical events repeating themselves is sorry i didn't get you could you repeat that so uh, means if something in history is repeating again so people are calling yes. it a cycle of time coming again i am not sure if that's what they call cycle of time i don't get their arguments their arguments don't really make a lot of sense to me i regret to say that but uh, from the perspective of physics from the perspective perspective of science time is just time it doesn't fall, go in cycles unless there is a cyclic universe of which we have no evidence so that's what i can tell you okay. all right sir thank you sir thank you thank you nice have meeting you have a good you day you too bye yeah. thank you bye, bye. okay uh, let us bring in mr pranav hello namaste sir uh, am namaste, i audible namaste yes you are yes, uh, yes sir where are you from sir? yes sir uh, patliputra patna now patliputra beautiful place <laughs> Yes, sir. So my question is, uh, what happened with the Buddhists of Bihar after the invasion took place? Like we know, uh, like Buddhism was the majority religion of Bihar before the Turkic invasion, but uh, like Buddhism just got disappeared, and like how Hinduism became one of the major religion here, and Buddhism just got disappeared. Okay, very good question. So, firstly, there is no difference between Buddhism and Hinduism. Just like there is no difference mm -hmm. between the Charva, between the between the Vedanta philosophy. See, the differences are very, very, very small, very minuscule, and those tiny two percent differences have been blown out of proportion, and that's what has been used by the British and the foreign colonizers to create these divisions in Indian society. Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, Sikhism—these are all under the Dharmic umbrella. They are all part of Dharma. and uh, that's what i would say first of all so the, so see hinduism buddhism these are foreign concepts it's just dharma and dharma comes in a variety of flavors and all that right so these are not separate religions it's not religion first of all religion means one book one prophet and one god we don't follow that right so now what happened to buddhism is the question because that particular flavor or variety of dharma was prevalent at different points in time in various parts of india like you say in magadh in the bihar region etc in patliputra and so on you had a, what would you would call buddhism was prevalent at the time for instance if you look at the university of nalanda it is portrayed as a buddhist university but you know what they were teaching everything there including the four vedas but historians want to portray it in a certain light now when you talk about the demise of what we call buddhism the turks they came from central asia right now before the turks took over central asia the entire region of central asia was dharmic and you had what we call buddhism all over the place in, in the entirety of central asia in hinduism also for instance if you go to even if you if you go to uh, 
Armenia, you find remains of Hindu temples there. And all across Central Asia, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and so on and so forth, you find the destroyed remains of Buddhist stupas everywhere. And who destroyed it? These Turks did that. So they had this great uh, zeal to destroy statues of the Buddha and to destroy everything that looked like Buddhism. And they called these statues, these murtis, they called them Buddha because it was Buddha. They only saw statues of Buddha across Central Asia. So when they finally invaded India and occupied parts of India, they went after every single representation of Buddha. They wanted to destroy every representation of Buddha they could find. And that's why they went after Buddhism. And that's how Buddhism or, or the both the Dharma part of Dharma was completely eradicated from India. It was not Brahmins who did that or Hindus who did that. It is the Turks who did that. They destroyed every single Buddhist statue. statue. You will not find a single statue of the Buddha in India whose head is still on the shoulders. They are all headless. It's the Turks who did I that. I have seen this. Uh, they, I have seen those. Uh, I have seen those. Yes, and they did not even they did not stop at simply beheading the statues, they beheaded all the teachers, all the monks, everybody. So that's why the living memory of Buddhism of both the Dharma was wiped out from India by the Turks. So that is what happened. All right. And so uh, I have just a related question from this. Like why Dharma got eradicated from Indonesia and Southeast Asia, but not from India. That's a whole different story. That's a whole different story. I will take one question per person. So we'll stop. Okay. Okay. Maybe next Thank you so much, later. sir. Right? Thank you so much. Sure, Thank sir. Nice Thank meeting you, so you. Okay. Uh, let's bring in Mr. Alok. Namaste, sir. Am I audible, sir? Hear you. What of noise? What of noise? Okay, sir. Am I audible, sir? That's a lot of noise. Am I audible? Okay. Okay, then I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you back later. Sorry, very sorry. Uh, let's bring in somebody else. Um, let's bring in Mr. Amit. Hello. Hello, sir. Hello, sir. Big fan. Thank you so much. Where are you, where are you from, sir? I'm from West UP, sir. Right now, I'm here in Bangalore. All right. Uh, all right. And first of all, I just wanted to congratulate you. Um, you've uh, you brought back this discussion on Indic revival and folks like us, we're falling in love with our culture again. And uh, it's all thanks to people like you. So uh, my question is uh, so there's a lot of discussion um, around changes in curriculum and education system that we need uh, and we know uh, right now uh, right from the beginning we are taught that uh, we are taught all about our uh, all about uh, how we how we've been um, um, how we've been uh, so my question is how will that change basically come about like, will the government have to do it? Will they have to um, change something in the constitution, make some laws, or should we do something about it? Like, basically start from our homes and that will uh, bring about that change. So you're asking, how do we change the education system? How do we change the curriculum? I think that yeah. is entirely in the hands of the government because the government controls the curriculum, the government controls everything, the UGC, etc., and so on and so forth. So they have come up with a new education policy, which is like much more of the same, actually. Some small changes, structural changes here and there, but it, it's not really a big change. 
so what needs to happen is uh, the, the the education system is entirely controlled by the government of india so it is only they who can change the system the structure the textbooks and whatever else right so they they have to do it but today what we are finding is the education is that the education system is quickly in the next 10 20 years at most it's going to become quite irrelevant because the degrees that they are offering they have no actual real world use in the 21st century they're giving these mas in english uh, literature and god knows what silly what um, msc in home science and god knows what silly courses still exist 19th century courses they're still giving them out you know what they these courses don't give you any any real skills that you can use in the 21st century to get a job and to to make a difference in the world so increasingly what you will find is that these courses will go out of either go out of existence or they'll become so irrelevant that people will not take them and what you will find is people will start acquiring skills and online certifications or whatever to demonstrate you have the skills and you can use them so that is another avenue by which the education system will become irrelevant and as you can see you can get almost any kind of knowledge for free online today so people who are driven by curiosity who want to gain the real knowledge about their past about their heritage they will start finding it online so that's two ways either the government does it or the people will seek seek it out on their own but unfortunately the education system is still something kids have to go through and that has this brainwashing effect in, in which they start hating their own culture and feel ashamed of their own culture for that i have been saying for a very long time the government needs to stay take steps maybe they feel it's not still the right time for that they won't wait, wait another 10 years or so i don't know i don't know what they're doing i am not privy to what their plans are so that's just what i can say that's where we are today all right sir i'll just finish by right. uh, saying that i'm a computer engineer and i love the huh. content you put out especially that uh, uh, that talk that you did with dr subhash uh, i absolutely loved it sir thanks a lot sir thank you thank you so much nice meeting you okay um whom shall i bring in let's bring in mr prajwal singh hello sir uh, nice meeting you uh, i've been uh, waiting for very long so uh, i am from uh, azamgarh it's in uttar pradesh and my question is regarding technology so there is a project uh, Uh, from my heart is beating very fast because relax sir to... relax there's no need to be tense not at all relax so uh, yeah in the technology that uh, uh, what are your th- thoughts upon uh, metaverse like uh, mark zuckerberg's new project yes the metaverse that's what everyone is talking about so the metaverse is going to be this augmented reality kind of thing in which you will have holograms people uh, uh, representations of people in holographic form sitting in the same room as you as you even though they are in a, in a different continent that sort of thing and you are going to have a reality that is augmented so you're going to be living in a virtual world that kind of is uh, is in addition to the real world that we live in and that sort of thing a cryptocurrency will play a big role in that so that's the kind of uh, thing they are trying to create they have renamed facebook to meta that's what mark zuckerberg has done and there's a there's a huge amount of investment that's happening in that so it is expected that over the next 10 years the entire technology will change and we will increasingly be living uh, a mixed kind of life half of it will be real half of it will be in the cyber cyber universe and that sort of thing 
So that's what the metaverse is, is going to be like. That's what they're trying to create. There's going to be a whole economy built around that. Uh, like I said, cryptocurrency would be a very big component of that. And you will have virtual real estate in the metaverse, which you can buy and sell. And you can do all kinds of things in that. And that's what it's like. So let's see how it goes. It looks like that's a very big uh, part of the future, whether we like it or not. The world is going to be like that. Uh, is it going to be good for us, bad for us? Only time will tell. But that is the direction the world is certainly, it certainly seems to be going towards. So does it carry a lot of cons as well? Because a uh, lot of people portray it uh, in negative light uh, that uh, it's uh, an it's kind of negative evolution for social media. Uh, so what what is what? The, so what they're saying is that this may essentially a, a cut off our connection with the real world. We will try and always be in this make believe artificial world, and it's like an addiction of kind of, of some sort, right? In the past, people used to get addicted to drugs and all that opium or whatnot, and today they will all they will spend their entire time in this imaginary. A uh, virtual world, they will, they will stop exercising, stop going out, stop socializing and all that. So yes, there are certainly um, big uh, drawbacks to this sort of thing. But there's big money being poured into it. So yeah, it could certainly very much happen and be the shape of tomorrow. So let's see how it goes. Uh, the, there are pros and cons to everything. There seems to be a lot of cons, like you said, but that's just the way the world is. It's about capitalism. It's about making money. <laughs> A lot of uh, power will be transferred to just one person, so it's a yeah. kind yeah. of uh, an empire yeah, of, sort of So that was uh, it. Nice meeting. All you right, thank you so much. Nice meeting. Okay. Nice meeting. Thank you. Thank nice meeting. You. Bye. All right, let's bring in Mr. Utkarsh. Hello. Hello, sir. Uh, so hello. I have been hoping to ask you uh, regarding. Uh, hello, yes, sir. Uh, I'm I'm living in China and I'm from New Delhi. Hello. Okay. Uh, so, sir, I have been hoping to ask you, like, is communism the problem, or is just America the problem, uh, or it's just <laughs> the implementation of communism the problem? Secondly, uh, this is an extension to my question. Like, I think uh, if America was actually concerned about human rights, Uyghurs or Tibetans, in any case, like, why are they not concerned about the same people who are living in, like, there was a Rwandan genocide in Africa. There has been genocides in uh, different parts of the world where America never intervened directly. But where they see their profit, they just intervene. So are we being played? Are India and China being played? Is this the new great game where we are just being played? Like India is the only massive economy or massive country that can counter China in all of Asia. So do you think we are just being played by US? Or are they really concerned about democracy? We just, okay, I just, just shed some light on it. See, democracy is just a pretext. It is something they use when it's convenient for them. to. They use it as a stick to beat other countries with. They also bring out the issue of human rights whenever it suits them. If we look at history, at historical records, you will see that this country, the United States, has itself done all kinds of human rights abuses. I don't think that's a controversial topic. It's all part. It's all a part of the historical record. You can look up. There's massive amounts of literature that 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 corroborates this. So the U.S. 
it uses human rights as a stick to beat certain countries with when it's convenient for them they talk about democracy but look at the certain countries they support like saudi arabia is that a democracy it's not a democracy but they are perfectly happy to be in bed with them so it's all about convenience the us after all at the end of the day is concerned with its long term national interest they want to retain their hegemony all over the, uh, across the world they are the only superpower in the world as of today they are the only country that controls the global economy that has the their currency is the global reserve currency and they are the only country that has military bases all across the world no other country has that and they want to retain this superpower status is it's essentially an imperial system and certainly they will want to play one country against the other right now the chinese are rising their ambition is to displace the us and replace them as the superpower as the sole superpower by 2050 or something like that right so the us perceive china as a big threat and for now they will use india as as a bulwark against china but if india becomes too big again in the future they will have the same attitude towards india also so it's all from the us perspective it's all about retaining their hegemonic position nothing else nothing else matters so in some sense india and china are being played but the chinese also have the same ambitions they also have the hegemonic ambitions and they want to replace the us so the chinese are also a similar kind of nation they are also currently showing this imperialist tendency they are bullying all their neighbors all the asian nations so it makes sense as of today for india and the us and the quad countries and everybody else to band together and contain china but in geopolitics there are no permanent friendships there are no permanent alliances there are no permanent adversarial relationships it's all about what's convenient right now so for india from india's perspective india has to build up its economy its military power and hopefully india will be the superpower in which case the world i think will be a better place because india doesn't have that expansionist imperialist culture so that's what i would say thank you sir thank you sir thank you nice meeting you good question thank you sir nice okay let us bring in sejal matre hello uh hello sir hello hi uh, yes. where from ma'am so i have uh i'm from uh, mumbai and i'm okay. uh, law student suddenly pursuing law so i have this question uh, about radia tapes so i have served, uh, i have searched a lot about radia tapes like a uh, If, if you talk about the present government, even the slightest small controversy is blown out of so much proportion. But uh, such a major controversy like radia tapes, I did not see any information on the internet, or not, or not there was any such discussion at that time as well. Right, that's a very so interesting point you bring out. Is, yeah, so yeah. I want to know like where we can get information about the same, and why isn't there much talk about this? Yeah, I don't know where you would get information about the radia tapes. I have never tried to look for it. Of course, I'm aware of that entire issue where all these so-called journalists they were acting as power brokers on behalf of the uh, then ruling regime in India, which is the Congress Party. So what what this tells you is that see, like you said, that incident they tried to downplay it and they tried to not report about it at all. and today if any little thing happens they will make a big hue and cry about everything that they can twist and uh, portray as the government not doing things right so what it tells you is that the media is ne- has never been free it's never been a free impartial media they have worked as agents of the ruling power it's always been that way and that is not something you will only find in india 
it's you, what you will find anywhere in the world look at the united states i'll not uh, take names but uh, various media companies etc they have their own political agendas and they have their own uh, various uh, masters that they have to serve so the media we have to we, we today we are waking up and finding out that the media is has never been free the media has never reported things impartially they, see the media is a business they have sources of funding and when you have somebody who's funding you you're going to have to do what they tell you to do right and who has the most money in the country it's various political parties and various intermediaries who can funnel that money into various media organizations so i am not saying that all media organizations are like this and i'm not saying that all politicians are doing this but one could safely assume that overall there's a high probability that any media company any reporter could possibly have some such motivations so that explains why historically india's media has served a certain political party all of them that's why they try to downplay whatever happened all that uh, all those revelations that were leaked out and that's why today they're trying to portray everything the current government does as bad that's the way the game is played all right okay. ma'am thank you thank you good question thank you bye okay uh let's bring in mr krishna hello sir hello sir good evening namaste namaskaram namaste namaste where are you from sir sir uh, i'm from kerala i have been uh, okay. in this channel like uh, two weeks ago uh, i i think you look familiar yes must be yes. yeah yeah we did <laughs> nice meeting you what's yeah. your question sir it's, it's a pleasure sir uh, so um, my question is that uh, there is a thing that most of our ancient knowledge is which uh, what we had during our past most of them have been uh, either destroyed and uh, they have been uh, transported to the european nations during the colonial era and those vedic knowledges and what we what the knowledges that we had during those time were used uh, by the europeans for their advantages and the development what they are what we are seeing today um in the europe and um, the foreign nations are mostly due to our uh, vedic knowledges uh, like uh, medicines uh, making of metals and uh, so on so uh, how what are the knowledge is what they have gained from here and used there for uh, other than uh, industrial revolution charka and that the um, metallurgy and uh, so on what are the knowledge is what they have looted from here and used there and uh, which is yeah. the total basis of their technological advancement all right so i could i could make the claim with uh, a reasonable amount of uh, uh confidence that most of modern science that we have today mm. is built upon the found a foundation of ancient indian science and knowledge so for instance all of the mathematics uh that was developed in the in europe in the during the scientific revolution etc it was all based upon uh, information that was taken out of india for instance calculus trigonometry algebra and much more the the various uh, all of it you know even even the uh, decimal system that went out of india via the arabs it, uh, it made its way there and also the all the knowledge of astronomy pharmacology toxicology ayurveda went made its way over there then it was uh, repurposed in different ways uh, there was a huge amount of astronomical data observations that was taken out of india and uh, it made its way into into europe 
and that was the basis of the kepler's laws the kepler's three laws of planetary motion and so on and so forth so everything they were so what they did was they took this knowledge and they weaponized it we did not weaponize it they weaponized it that's what happened so there's a whole lot of ancient hindu science that was taken out of india and it made its way into europe via the arabic world the arabs never tried to hide the fact that this was indian knowledge they they made it very clear that this is indian knowledge hindu knowledge but the europeans they plagiarized it and did not attributed to india and that's why we think everything is it originated in europe so i have a podcast coming up on tuesday with dr alok kumar who has written this book uh, ancient hindu science so i think uh, you should all watch that and he goes into more detail about how this happened and what knowledge was taken out of out of india so that's what i can say in brief that a huge amount of knowledge was taken out of india and it is now known as european knowledge and the entire basis of modern science is that so uh, the uh, basis of this question is that uh, some most of those uh, evangelists or the people who convert they are claiming that uh, it is the uh, europeans who gave us information it is they will, the, it. The they will claim it yeah it is lies it's it is all lies right they lying yes, I, yeah because they are lying through their teeth like uh, they most of the information are coming from there we have nothing all of those cont- contributions the even the languages are brought from there and they even claim that sanskrit was a foreign language so uh, yeah it's totally sadding to see that so uh, that's it so hopefully india is now slowly waking up and we will see the truth so it's all about uh, spreading the knowledge and learning the truth and you're doing a wonderful job and you're doing an amazing job thank you so much all right nice meeting you thanks namaste 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 thank you bye okay let us take one last person for today i know lots of people are waiting my apologies i can only take one let's bring in mr gautam hello uh, good evening sir uh, i good hope evening. you are fine sir actually i i have uh, one question but two parts to it um, where are you from first of all where are you from i'm from odisha sir and, odisha very uh, nice very nice actually, okay what's your question um the first part of my question is that uh, how did string theory fail and the second part to it is that uh, i was searching about the uh, new alternative to string theory and i came across quantum loop gravity and i didn't quite understand it so i would like if you shed some light to it okay what you're talking about is loop quantum gravity lqg i think it is very difficult for most people at any age to understand lqg it is so complicated so mathematical uh, so first of all you're saying why how do we how can we conclude that string theory has failed so yes. i um, so any any theory of nature any theory in physics need must make testable falsifiable predictions right it must predict predict some phenomena it must predict some some new results and those predictions must be testable and falsifiable if a theory does not meet this these criteria it is not a scientific theory it's it's a it's a pseudo scientific theory and string theory in all these decades has not been able to make a single testable falsifiable prediction yes. right and therefore it it has failed it gives rise to 10 raised to 500 different versions of the universe yes, yes. or or you could they call it the string theory multiverse of the string theory landscape that is nonsense 
that is absolute nonsense a theory needs to be precise it needs to make real world predictions in in this universe right so yes. this string theory has consumed a lot of funding lot of time lot of um, careers but it has not made given us any new predictions of how of what the world is like and that's why it has failed now there are many alt uh, proposed alternatives one of which is qu loop quantum gravity so loop quantum gravity is a different kind of thing it it uh, talks about a, a certain kind of it says that, that space time originates in these space time loops and the interaction intersections of the loops they give rise to gravity and time also comes out of it and the smallest unit of volume is i think 10 uh, of the order of 10 raised to minus 99 meters or so i don't remember exactly i have a, a short clip about that on this channel that you can look into uh, that you can okay. watch i think okay. i've given more precise details in that so that's what lqg is to study it and do that you need to actually dive deep into physics so i think you're a little young for that but maybe in the future you may do it right yes yes thank you sir all right nice meeting you thank you so much bye Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I think lots of people want... Okay, let's bring in one more person. Last person for today. Let's bring in Charmi. Hello. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you. Um, thank you for taking my question. Um, You're from sir, Australia, um, right? If I, if I, yeah. Not today, sir. Today I'm in India. So... You're in India. Welcome back home, madam. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, sir. Um, okay, what's your so... question? Uh, so, sir, like my question is, um, like we see this lot of uh, uh, neo-Hinduism uh, coming up, like, you know, lots of uh, gurus and babas, and they often come up with, like, you know, nice, um, uh, like, it's, in a way, I find it, it's it's good also that, like, that way, like, we get a lot of interest from youngsters or even from uh, probably um, uh, foreigners. Um, but it's actually, uh, is it really good? Because just if you allow me to el elaborate a little bit, like, you know, you just uh, have got uh, yoga is uh, branded as non-Hindu. And um, uh, like sometimes, I mean, maybe it's just to attract uh, foreigners or other religion people. Um, but it's also madness. Like, why do we want to attract foreigners? Uh, why do we want to impress them with our, our culture? when we are not really sure we are we are kind of like uh, we also don't know what it is and you know it so uh, also confuses so is it really good long term for india is it really good long term for dharma i mean very confusing what do you think very good question very good question so we have this proliferation of uh, self styled gurus if you have a few thousand yeah. dollars and if you can uh, open a yoga studio then you can call yourself a guru so yes. there are all these gurus who have come up, who are cropping up like mushrooms after the rain. And the, so the word guru had a very specific meaning in the old days before we, our culture was wiped out more or less. And today that, that term is used very lightly in a very facile manner. So all these gurus, in my opinion, are not real gurus. A guru was, in the old days, was a very highly accomplished person. You needed to put in a lifetime of study and discipline and dedication to attain the status of a real guru. Before that, mm -hmm. you were adhyapak or whatever, you know, different levels that you had yep. to rise through to eventually become a guru. And you would not typically become a guru until the age of 45, 50 or, or maybe even more than that. Today, everybody is a guru. And they are interpreting, like you said, Dharma, Yoga in a variety of different ways, just in order to make money. It's all capitalism, isn't it? It's all about making money. Yes. And there are some other people who are trying to draw a more spiritually inclined audience by giving themselves various titles 
and so on so it's again about getting funds about getting money it's about it's all capitalistic and yes. this like you so right like you rightly point out it is in the long term going to have a very bad influence and a bad effect on what our culture is what our dharma is because now anybody can say that i know what your dharma is and this is yes. the, the real dharma that's what's yes. happening so we have lost our standards we what we need is a standards institute for instance we india needs to create a yoga standards institute which will be the global institute that determines what is yoga what is not yoga mm. and yep. that's what needs to happen then we will be able to standardize things and we will be able to draw a line between what is yoga and what is not yoga and similarly for the various different dharmic philosophies we need to have that system instituted and real gurus need to be put in place so right now it's like it's a free for all situation there is this individual called wim hof who has stolen pranayam who has stolen the uh, uh, the 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 path of the himalayan yogis who sit in the snow and he has combined these two things and he calls it the wim hof method right so he that is cultural theft that he is doing and he is making million millions of dollars out of it so all these fake gurus have cropped up and it is really bad for us so it is for india to do something about it right now nothing is happening but i hope in the future something happens so i'm really glad you brought this up it's a very very good question very leg- legitimate concern that you have and i i hope the government because it's a government that can set up these institutes we can't do it we don't have the funding unless uh, 50 or 100 or 1000 people get together in that case who will lo- who will who will decide so the government needs to take the initiative you know? see the so the thing is that like it's not even that it's also like you know uh, we as an indian we have this mentality to impress like someone with the white skin no matter what <laughs> and uh, it's it's uh, uh, in that like you know we are i mean obviously all all the other factors are there like the theft that they are doing and all but other than that like we are also like you know we want the approval from them i mean we really yeah, need to right, right. i mean i, 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 so I, I don't yeah, why why should we care if they like our culture or not like who cares absolutely absolutely see the the, the problem is that over the past a few centuries we have we have been portrayed as deeply inferior to the foreign occupiers and that's why i think there is a certain amount of this inferiority complex among certain indian people many i would say many indian people that people with white skin are superior to us so that needs to slowly be uh, replaced by a more confident approach as india will grow economically and power in military power the the attitudes will change right now we have this attitude that we want to impress people from other countries especially people with white skin and so on so it is just a a sign of the times that we are living in hopefully as the years go by things will improve i am quite optimistic i am very hopeful right well that's that's good thing to know thank you sir thank you so much nice talking to you again thank you bye thank you bye All right friends ladies gentlemen uh this brings me to the end of today's session my apologies to everybody else who is trying to get in and speak to me uh we will do more of this and uh, so thank you all very interesting session very good questions and i am as always very grateful for everybody who comes here who asks questions who watches thank you so much to all of you and i will see you in the next ask abhijit session thank you so much bye